Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. So, you know that here on Solvable, we're used to having guests who are taking on huge challenges. But our guest this episode, Shashi Bulaswar, is not content with just one solvable. He has three. The first is electricity access. Today, a billion people around the world don't have access to electricity, and that number is expected to grow. Uh, my first solvable is coming up with mechanisms to make sure those billion people have electricity. The second is, it's not electricity that matters, it's what people do with it. One of the most important things people can do with electricity is refrigeration. They can save perishables. If they're growing fruits and vegetables, they can store them and take them to market. Uh, they can store sensitive pharmaceuticals. Of the 7.7 billion people in the world, um, almost a third don't have access to refrigeration. I would love to solve that problem. The third is the dignity of sanitation and toilets. Today, again, over a billion people in the world do not have access to clean sanitation, whether it's at home, whether it's in cities where human waste just gets dumped into local waterways. One of my solvables is making sure everybody in the world has decent sanitation and waste treatment. Shaji is the CEO of the Institute for Transformative Technologies in California. Its mission is to use technological breakthroughs to transform global development, improving access for millions of people to sanitation, food, primary health care and electricity. Now, the potential to harness technology to create solutions to economic, social and environmental challenges is massive. Anybody with even a passing interest in tech or artificial intelligence 
has probably had that giddy feeling about these huge opportunities for developing countries to skip stages that took other nations years to get to. And it's totally true that frontier technologies today are better, cheaper, faster and more scalable. They're even easier to use than ever before. But technology also presents an array of challenges that need to be handled with care. And Shashi Baluswar walks that balance beam quite beautifully. He grew up in India and he believes his countrymen there should have the agency to solve their own issues. And that's a huge part of his philosophy today. He passes it on in his work in India as well as in Kenya and Nigeria. Shashi's work at the Institute for Transformative Technologies focuses on solving problems for people living in poverty by using technology. And he hits on three solvables in this discussion. But the one he gets down and dirty with is sanitation. The World Health Organization reports that almost 2.3 billion people worldwide still do not have access to rudimentary sanitation facilities. Almost half of India's people don't have toilets at home. A good sanitation system can prevent environmental damage caused by untreated sewage flowing into rivers and it can also stamp out the terrible health risks associated with open defecation like infectious diseases, undernutrition and even increased vulnerability to verbal, physical or sexual violence. So there's loads in this conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. Let's get into it. What's your kind of point of entry to the kinds of things you're interested in? Growing up in, in India, one of my most distinct memories is that we'd have foreign tourists. When it's foreign, typically, I mean, white tourists would come. Uh, I live very close to a slum, so they'd come take pictures with, with the poor kids. I wasn't myself particularly poor, but, but lived around them. Then they'd go off to their ashram, their yoga retreats, and so on. And I was very curious what brought them there. And when I asked them, uh, they said, oh, we're here to help which as an Indian kid made me feel like, wow, we must be so incompetent that we can't help ourselves. And, you know, as I go back to India now, some of those kids just died, right? They just never, never made it to adulthood. Uh, others did fine, but they did fine on their own. Right? And so this idea of as an Indian, I have to do what I can to help India became very important. At the same time, I, I realized that only Pakistanis can help Pakistan, only Kenyans can help Kenya. And so it became very important for me to have the sense of local empowerment, that we're all global citizens and global poverty is a global problem. But it became extraordinarily important for me to, to work in the context in which you're finding really good people in country right? and, and working with them to solve local problems. Describe how you got drawn into the kinds of problems you're now. How did you get interested in those particular issues? A few years back, I was invited to start an institute at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in Berkeley to use the R&D might of the national lab system to address problems related to poverty. And what I immediately realized was that this whole technology for good space is full of hammers looking for nails. Hey, I've got this fabulous technology. Let me go solve problems with them. And typically, these result in technology sitting on shelves. Right? They make for great media splashes, but otherwise don't really go anywhere. So 
we launched a very ambitious study we call the 50 breakthroughs. Essentially, what are the 50 most important technologies required to solve poverty over the next 20 years? And our job is to get them to life, that 50 or some significant subset. Of you have this list of 50. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more sort of criteria about what, what it takes to be on the list. What we did was we methodically went through every major problem that, that uh, mm-hmm. affect the poor. So food security, health, education, human rights, gender inequity, digital access, uh, electrification, water, and so on. And essentially said, you know, many of these problems actually will go away with good policy and good infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But there is a subclass of these problems for which a new generation of technologies is required. Those technologies currently do not exist. Oh, I what see. are those? Yeah. And then as we did the mapping, we said, well, some of these technologies may come to life on their own simply because of market forces. So a low-cost smartphone, for instance. Today, you can get a $50 smartphone, and I'm sure pretty soon you can get a $25 smartphone. On the other hand, you have problems that are so complex, problems that don't have strong enough market forces, like a malaria vaccine. So what we do is we've taken a class of problems in the middle where you don't have to spend $50 million to solve it. Mm-hmm. You can solve each one with 2 to $5 million. We also categorize these problems on the basis of commercial interest. Right? So if this is a problem in which a global company can make money solving, chances yeah. are it's going to fix itself again, like the smartphone. So that's a further... That's exactly. So there's two dimensions, really. Right? Yeah. So one, one dimension is how complex is it. Mm-hmm. The other dimension is what's the commercial attractiveness. Right? Yeah. If, it's, if it's commercially attractive to global companies like, like GE or, or Apple... Problem is going to be solved. On the at the other end of the spectrum, there are problems that simply are not financially viable. Right? Yeah. So, so a lot of things related to human rights, for instance. So we again focused in the middle, where we said, look, there are companies based in Kenya, based in Pakistan, based in India, that actually would love to build financially sustainable businesses with these technologies, but they don't currently invest the R and D to bring those technologies to life. So what we do is we take philanthropic money, figure out a way to make those technologies come to life, demonstrate the financial and business viability of these technologies, and then work with those companies to, to launch businesses. Oh, I see. So let's start with refrigeration. Walk me through. I know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. My notion of what refrigeration is, is a $500 plug-in refrigerator. It seems to me, at first blush, how on earth would you make such a thing practical for a very, very poor community? So let's talk about refrigeration in two stages. First, first is electrification, then refrigeration. Yeah. For electricity, the current paradigm, at least the historic paradigm, has been let's build these large uh, electric infrastructures, let's have fossil fuel-based generation, and turn the switch on. When we started looking at the electrification problem, we realized that if you're a far-flung village, it's very hard to extend the grid to where you are you have to build what's called a solar mini-grid. And in India, we did some math in terms of the, the this is three years back, what, what is the cost of a solar mini-grid? What does that translate into in terms of per month utility bills? And what can people pay? If a family is earning 3 to $5 a day, which is not atypical for the um, average Indian household, the cost of electricity with a solar mini-grid was twice what people can afford to pay. In addition to that, you know, if you want to build a solar mini-grid in a village of 1,000 people, it'll take you two or three months. So our mission became 
can we reduce the cost by 50% and can we dramatically reduce the installation time? So we sought out the three or four people we consider to be the leading experts in the world from the developing world. And uh, over the course of two and a half years, we built such a system. And almost on day one, one of the questions we asked ourselves was, great, if we build this technology, who will take it to market? And there was one company that jumped out, Tata Power. As you know, Tata is a huge conglomerate in India. They have a presence in multiple sectors. They're also a company that has a long history of doing the right thing, investing in social businesses, thinking about profit only as an afterthought. And electric utility is not going to be wildly profitable, even if you go to Switzerland or Liechtenstein. So the thinking was, can we get a company that has staying power, that can, whatever we design, procure the stuff using massive economies of scale, has the respect of the government and communities around the country so that they'll trust them to do the right thing and can really move the economic muscle, put in hundreds of million dollars to do this at a massive scale. So we brought them to the table in 2016. And as of late 2018, we had built the system to their satisfaction. So as we speak, we are in the process of launching what will be the largest electrification event in history. Wow. So they've agreed to do 10,000 villages, 25 million people. We're actually talking about this same project in another episode of Solvable. So it's lovely how these two things dovetail. I'm curious, just at the scale of this. So you're talking about one of these solar grids costs how much? I'll give you the cost in terms of per watt. For a full system, which includes the panels, the batteries, the electronics, and a one to two kilometer grid, plus smart meters, it costs a dollar fifty per watt. So for a village of a thousand people, it's about $45,000. Oh, wow. That strikes me as an incredibly low number. It is. It is affordable. But still, you know, these are very poor people, right? We still have to make yeah. the math work. So the flip side of this is energy efficient appliances, right? Because you could have electricity at whatever cost you have them at. But if your, if your appliances are consuming much more than they should, your monthly bills go up, right? So that's where energy efficient and affordable refrigeration comes in. If people were to use an existing fan, right, an existing just run-of-the-mill fan, they'd pay much, much more than they can afford. Certainly, if they were to use an existing fridge, let's say, let's say you got used fridges for 100 bucks, right? There's no way they'd be able to afford electricity. Therefore, there's no way they'd be able to afford refrigeration. Do these ideas, what are the chances they all trickle back to the developed world? For example, you have this modular mini solar grid. Why, if I'm a rural community in North America somewhere, is there a point at which we say, can I have that thing that you've already installed in India? Does it move the other direction? It can. I don't believe the mini grids themselves will because we're optimizing them for people who earn 3 to $5 a day. Yeah. And so that comes with, with, with certain limitations. In the U.S., for instance, people are willing to pay a lot more than that. Right? And so I'm sure some version of these technologies will come back. There's one that I'm particularly excited about that, I, that I'm quite certain will come back. Remember, we, we talked about waste treatment. Mm -hmm. Do you know that earthworms love eating human poop? No. It turns out that so one of the problems we, we work on is sanitation and waste treatment, sewage treatment. And we had concluded that it's going to be impossible 
going forward to build out that kind of a sewage treatment for a billion plus people, two billion plus people around the world. And composting toilets currently in, in the West are ridiculously expensive, ridiculously uh, complicated. Turns out that earthworms actually like human waste. Right? But if you simply you know, take a drum of earthworms and put human waste in it, they'll drown because the matter is so dense. A few British scientists... Wait, uh, they'll drown? You put... If I had a... Not sure I understand this. So let's take two tanks. Yeah. One tank has cow dung. Yeah. The other tank has human waste. Cow dung is a lot less dense. There's a lot more fibrous material. Right? So, so the earthworms will do fine in that tank. In the other tank, human waste is significantly more dense. Right? So they, they just cannot breathe. It, it's not an, an aerobic yeah. process. Yeah. So some scientists in a couple of British universities, I think well over a decade back, had figured out that if you create a layered system, and the way this layered system manifests itself in the toilets we're building is, imagine, imagine you have a tiny little outhouse. Right? You're in a village, you have a hut, and outside that hut is, a, is an outhouse that's, let's say, four feet by four feet and you know, seven feet tall. Right behind it is a drum that's three feet in diameter, three feet in depth. The bottommost layer is just rocks that you'd find locally. Then you've got gravel, which you can also find locally. And then sand, which some variation of it you can find locally. Right, so that takes up about 12 to 18 inches. Right? Then you've got a three or four inch layer of the earthworms and some sort of organic matter. Right? So that is the digestion mechanism for the toilet. How much do you think something like that would cost? It's one kilogram of earthworms. 25 bucks. In my drum, I have how many worms? One kilogram of worms. Let's say it's a thousand worms. thousand worms. And I'm going to ask a totally naive question. If you start with a thousand worms, how quickly do you have more than a thousand worms? Does the population sort of multiply? Do they self-generate more and more worms? Well, the thing about pretty much every species except humans is they optimize the population based on the resources. Oh, I see. Okay. So what happens is if you don't use the toilet... The population goes down. You, know, you can go almost six weeks, two months without using the toilet at all. Right? And even after that, the eggs stay dormant. So once you start using it again, the population grows. So again, so you've got about a foot and a half of available space, right? So let's say a family of four is using this toilet with this tiny drum. How long do you think it takes to fill up? That? Longer than one would think is my answer. Very astute. Yeah. It takes eight years to fill up. Because what the worms do is they, there's obviously the law of conservation of mass. They convert a lot of it into, into CO2, which is much better than methane, which is what would happen ordinarily. And then they chew up the stuff into tiny, tiny little particles. And in the process, they destroy 99 plus percent of the pathogens. So essentially, it gets washed away into the soil, but you wouldn't drink it. But if you drank it, drank the effluent, nothing would happen to you. Wow. Wait, so what happens is the waste goes in the top, yeah. does it? And it filters down? Correct. And where are the worms? Are they throughout the, the base? Or are they? why is it that the presence of this base diminishes the density of the waste? One thing it allows the worms to do is they, they, can, they can spend time wherever they want. If it gets too dense above, they can go below. The second thing is that by adding these layers, you're dramatically increasing the surface area. So as the waste filters down the biofilm gets deposited over a very, very large surface area. So whatever pathogens the worms don't kill off, die off in that process. 
Is the drum in the ground and the, and the waste is going directly into it? How is this configured? Imagine the typical commode, and usually in the context we work in, it's, it's a squatting toilet, right? You have the little U-pipe that goes from the commode, and then it dumps under the ground into this drum. Oh, see, so the drum is buried. Yeah. Yeah. The point is, after eight years, you might have to revisit this. But in the medium to long term, you install this, and it's no muss, no fuss. You're not digging up the drum at any point, or... That's correct. Yeah. We have run into some problems. So two years back, India had horrible monsoon rains. And in one of the villages, the worms drowned simply because there was two feet of standing water for a couple of weeks. So things like that can happen. How do you know when all your worms have drowned? Does it, is it start to back up? It starts to smell. Now, one of the really good things about uh, these toilets is that there's no smell, there are no flies. In fact, most of the users... They don't care about the pathogen destruction value. What they care about is, hey, wow, I can have a toilet that doesn't smell. How can it not smell? Simply because of the biological process here, right? So I have this video that I love showing. Essentially, it's a camera in one of these drums. And it's over the course of 20 hours. And if you just look at the footage at normal speed, you don't see anything. What you do notice is that a couple of hours after somebody defecates, the stuff disappears. If you significantly increase the speed, what you see is that the earthworms are doing what earthworms do, which is they're rolling the soil over, right? And so as a result of that, within two hours after somebody uh, defecates, the stuff is actually already buried in the soil. How widely has this system been deployed in India? On one hand, it is uh, the most widely selling toilet technology for the poor. On the other hand, it's a tiny number. It's like 7,000 or so. And we've been figuring out one of two directions to go in. Turns out that there's a much larger scale version of this that we've used for treating raw sewage. So as I mentioned earlier, in a lot of cities in the developing world, sewage just, just dumps into local waterways, right? And that, that causes all sorts of problems from aesthetics to, to health and so on. And so in the city of Pune, which has, again, a bunch of such sewage pipes, we've tapped into one of them and have a larger scale version of this earthworm. When you say larger scale, how, how big is it? You know, it's the size of half a football field. Can you do this at any scale? In principle, yes. Yeah. My sense is that as it gets larger, rather than simply growing it, we may just have two or three. So what's happened to the one in Pune? It's doing very well. So that is actually the thing we're most excited about right now, simply because now you can go into a city and over the course of a year, build out the, the uh, sewage treatment infrastructure at a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the cost. You know, probably one-tenth of the cost of uh, what, what it would cost you if, you if you built a conventional system. If you compared this in, in the West, suppose you were going to build out a sewage treatment down the road from where we are now. Mm-hmm. Is the ratio the same, one-tenth? Or is it, I'm, just, I'm curious about the kind of state-of-the-art Western-style sewage facilities. What, is the co- what are the costs of those compared to something like this? I couldn't give you a dollar number for yeah. that, right? But, but if you just look at the components of the cost, right? so the, the earthworms kind of grow themselves, meaning that you just have a large ditch with sewage and the earthworms will reproduce. The rest of it is almost zero infrastructure. Right? So you've got no concrete. You know, if, you go, if you walk into a typical sewage treatment plant, you've got lots of power. You've got pumps because the way we treat waste right now is we aerate them, aerate the waste, right? Uh, so none of that is required. 
Right? It, it runs on a tiny solar panel just to pump the stuff. And the rest of it is just the worms. Right? Yeah. So the amount of land is the same. But you're not spending anything on motors and pumps. You're not spending anything on large concrete structures. So this is one that you expect to move from that could well, you think, be popular in more developed countries? It could be. It could be. So I'll give you an example of something that came up, which I would love to explore. I don't know if the current regulatory environment allows for that. In the state of Alabama, Lowndes County, it's a largely African-American community. The rates of hookworm and roundworm infection, they're comparable to the developing world. Mm-hmm. And the sanitation infrastructure there is non-existent. And the state of Alabama is just not bothered to build it out. And so a lot of the, the old uh, septic tanks, they just sort of, they dump into the soil there. A place like that is perfect for this kind of a setup. Obviously, given that the U.S. is uh, much more of a litigious society than, than India is, we'd have to be much more careful about liability protections and so on and so forth. And it's not yet clear what the regulatory environment is for composting toilets. Now, in a lot of, in, and it turns out in the U.S. it's a county-by-county county thing around the country. So some counties are fine with it because they don't have a large enough population and most of them live off-grid anyway. And it's just an alternative to septic tanks. But other counties are much more stringent about it. But if that uh, switch flips where where counties, uh, particularly rural counties, recognize that this is a much more environmentally sound way to do things with the appropriate checks and balances to make sure we're not polluting uh, the ground and polluting the waterways, I suspect something like this could be very, very interesting. In fact... Uh, if you do an internet search, you'll find that there are some people living off grid who already do something of this sort. Yeah. W- one last question that has to do with scale. Sounds like you guys have lots and lots of good ideas, and these ideas have lots and lots of potential. But ultimately, of course, everything is going to depend on your ability to scale these to where they make a meaningful difference. Tell me a little bit about how you think about the scaling problem. If I wanted to put one of these toilets in every Indian village that needed one, what would have to happen? I don't believe startups are set up to scale. If you go back to the example of Tata Power, right, uh, the reason we brought them on board is that you know, for, for a startup like ours, a small organization like ours, if we were to reach 200 villages, that would be unprecedented scale. Mm-hmm. Tata Power wouldn't think of 200 as even a starting point. For them, 10,000 villages is a starting point. Right? So... Our belief is that the best way to scale is to have a company like that that's hungry for this, for this market, that is respected by the government, that has a good track record, and has a staying power. Um, as it happens, there's another Tata company that we've been working with. It's called Tata Projects, which is an infrastructure company. Uh, we're, we're talking to them about possibly scaling up this, this toilet and this uh, sewage treatment business. It's not nearly as mature as the, the Tata Power conversation is. But I suspect if you, if you go around the world, uh, in a number of emerging economies, right, uh, Kenya, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and so on, there are companies that, that are much better positioned than outside entities to scale. And our job is to find who they are. If they're not interested, that, kind of, that ends the deal right there. But if they are, we bring them along. But this is... From, for, from the perspective of someone like Tata Products, is this actually a business? I mean, that is to say, is, is the, you can, 
the idea of installing these and presumably being paid by the local um, municipality or whoever it is, that actually translates into something that could be conceived of as a large-scale business. It would have to be a large-scale business. In fact, because it's a low-margin business, yeah. it has to be a large-scale business. Uh, in the toilets context, you may recall that uh, the Modi government in India launched this sort of universal toilets uh, initiative, and that was going to be the vehicle for us to do this. Unfortunately, in that program, it ended up being a numbers game more than anything else. So we've decided to pull back from that a little bit, so wait for that dust to settle, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that because the government was giving $175 per household subsidy to build toilets. And so lots of households took the $175, built something that kind of resembled a toilet, but the, the user rate is not very high. And in an earthworm-based system, if people build a toilet and don't use it, the earthworms die. Yeah. Right? So, so what we're waiting for is pretty soon, and we, we believe that in, in a country like India and a, bu- and a bunch of countries around the world, open defecation is or will soon be a thing of the past. You know, because it's, if nothing else, it's a matter of dignity and it's a matter of security. So people will want, aspirationally, people will want clean toilets. And, uh, and so this is, we believe it's perfectly positioned for that. Yeah, yeah. This has been fascinating. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you. I never thought I'd learn that a kilogram of earthworms cost $25, but I will certainly be repeating that fact. The way Shashi tackles these huge, almost existential challenges with such gritty detail is really important, I think. He says himself that technology and artificial intelligence cannot alone solve global poverty. It all depends on the context and the existing structures. Bringing this holistic viewpoint is something a lot more tech people could find helpful. Oh, and the electrical mini-grids Shashi mentioned to Malcolm? They're actually the subject of our next episode of Solvable. Ashvin Dayal will tell us more about the incredible ways they can transform lives and communities. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards.
See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.